Good morning. If you are visiting with us this morning, I just want to welcome you. As I was thinking about these folks graduating, and my niece was one of them in the first service, it just reminded me how much of a family that we get to be in this church. And I'm so thankful for each of you as my extended family. And if you're visiting with us, you're, you're welcome here uh, to the, the family reunion. We've got our problems and we're kind of jacked up, but uh, you're welcome here. So come on in. Uh, my name is Noah Joyner, and I have the privilege of serving on staff here at North Wake, and it, and it really is a privilege. I don't, I, that's not, a, um, it's not just a, a thing that I say or that we say. It really is just a joyful thing to get to serve week to week and day to day with guys like Daniel and Carson and Jake and uh, ever, I mean, the whole, the whole crew, and, and really just to be able to have the opportunity to serve Larry in this way, to be able to preach while he is away on sabbatical is just a, a real joy. So uh, please continue to pray for him. Um, it's a joyous day for me. I was baptized into this church 16 years ago in the month of June, and today my oldest son will be baptized into this church. And uh, that's a, that's a joyful thing for a parent, and so I look forward to growing in Christ with him. He's, he's more mature than I, than I am already, and so I hope to keep pace with him, and um, I just look forward to growing in Christ with him. I'm really pleased with what God is doing in him and the way that he's responding to, to what God's doing in him. So um, another reason for joy for me today is the passage that we're going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter 7 is one of my very favorite passages. There's this guy named Melchizedek in the passage, and I've always really kind of loved the story of Melchizedek. And so I asked my wife early on when we started having kids about having a kid named Melchizedek, and she's the brains of the operation, so she said no. And so we named our youngest daughter Salem from this passage. Um, So it really is one of my favorite passages from my very favorite book of the Bible. If I had to be stranded on an island with one book, it would be this book. If you're visiting with us, you need to know we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we're right in the middle. Chapter 7, right in the middle of the book, and we'll be doing the whole chapter today. And the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews or Jews who had become Christians They had trusted in Christ for their salvation. They had left all the requirements of of their old religion behind because Jesus was the fulfillment of of that religion. It was fulfillment of all that the Old Covenant had taught and all the Old Testament had taught. And so they, they left that behind because they wanted the substance, not the shadow. And so all the things in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the Old Priesthood and all that, they were like a shadow, right? But they had clinged on to the substance who is Jesus. And so they were tempted to turn back. They were tempted to turn back to their old way of living because they were being persecuted. And their community was, was hating on them and rejecting them because they had rejected Judaism. And so they were tempted. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, don't turn back. Why would you settle for the shadow when you can have the substance? Why settle for a a dim outline of a thing that can't save your soul when you can have the true Savior of your souls? So imagine with me, um, you and I walk out into the parking lot, and when we get out there, there's there's only one car in the parking lot, and it's that car you've always wanted in perfect condition. 
And as we're walking out, man, you're, you're, you're fixed on this car. And I pull the keys out of my pocket and you hear the jingle and you say, is that your car? And I'm like, yeah, that's my car. And you're like, man, that's awesome. And then I hear, then I say the words that you want to hear. Do you want it? And knowing that you don't have enough money to purchase the vehicle, you say, no, I don't, I don't have enough money for it. And then I say, I want to give it to you. It's yours. And as you're in disbelief, you're walking around the car, looking in the windows, checking out the car, and then your face suddenly changes. And you say, no, I, I can't take the car. My, my family and my friends, they just, they just they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't let me. And you say, can I take a picture of it? And I'm, I'm like, oh, okay. And you're thinking to yourself, well, uh, I, whenever I need a ride, I'll just, I'll just look at this picture. Now you're thinking, that's ridiculous. Who would not take the car? Who would do that? Just because of what people would think. But many people have rejected something greater because of what people might think. And you might be thinking, how useless is a picture of a car when one needs to take a trip? But this is how useless any way of getting to God is if it bypasses the only way that he offers. It's that useless. So which would you choose? The car or the photo? And this is the question that the writer of Hebrews is posing to his friends. Which will you choose? The shadow or the substance? Judaism and all that it requires or Christ? So my job this morning is to navigate us through the whole of chapter 7. So we have a lot of work to do. And so let's commit ourselves to, to Christ during this time. Let's pray and ask God to be with us as we, as we do this work. Father, we do pray. We ask that you would come and meet with us. And by the Spirit, you would prepare us and, and give the Word a place to land in our hearts. Good soil to receive the seed of your Word. That we might grow in Christ. That we might grow like Him. Be like Him. That we might trust Him in new ways, ways that we've not trusted even yet. So, Father, thank you for all that you're doing in us, and thank you for your promise to make us like Christ. We pray these things in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin our time this morning by, uh, with a story. Uh, it's a true story from the Bible, and it's from the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 14. And it explains how there's this alliance of kings... And they all come together and they make a decision to dominate some other kings in their area. And so that's what they do. They get in this big lump of kings and they go from one place to place dominating, defeating all these kings and taking all their stuff. Then they decide that they're going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah and defeat those kings and take all their stuff. And they do. Well, when they do that, they take all the stuff and they take all the people, men, women, and children, and they take them away. Well, one of the people that they took away was a guy named Lot. Well... Lot was the nephew of a guy named Abram. And Abram is a boss. He doesn't play. And Abram goes Liam Neeson on these folks. And he puts 318 men together, trained men, and they go and pursue these kings, these small armies, and they overtake them at night. And they defeat them. And then they take all the stuff and all the people, and they take it back to where it came from. And as they're Going towards Sodom and Gomorrah, they come to this valley. It's called the Valley of the Kings. And when they get there with all this stuff in tow, a guy named Melchizedek comes out and meets them. And our story picks up this morning 
in Genesis 14, in verse 17, and it says this. After the return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with them, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the valley of kings. But Melchizedek, or and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram God, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we see that Abram, who will become Abraham, has just defeated the most powerful alliance of kings at the time. And he's coming back from, from battle, people and stuff and so. And he's on top. He's top dog. He's beating everybody. And as he's doing that, he runs into this guy, Melchizedek. He's the king of peace or the, the king of Salem. He's the priest of the God Most High. And he brings some food out to Abram, and then he blesses him. And no, this is not like when someone sneezes and you're like, bless you. Like something completely different than that. It's more substantial than that. This guy is God's representative on earth, and we see that in how he blesses. He does it on God's behalf. He speaks for God, and he clarifies which God, the highest God, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, the, the God of all gods. Then he blesses God for giving the victory to Abraham. This Melchizedek is, is acting as a mediator between God and Abram. He's a conduit of blessing from God to Abram and a conduit of blessing from Abram to God. So Abram then responds rightly by acknowledging the greatness of God and the reality that Melchizedek is truly the, the priest of God. And he gives a portion of what he has been given, what he has won in battle. He gives it to him, gives it to God Most High in worship by offering it to Melchizedek. Now you might be thinking, why do I need to know this? I thought we were in Hebrews chapter 7. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, and you'll see this starting in verse 1 through 3. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So this is why we need to have Genesis 14 in our minds, because it is the place setting on which the writer of Hebrews is about to serve up this huge feast. So chapter 6 ends by pointing out the fact that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. That was uh, Daniel's passage uh, last week. And then in the chapter and the passages before, Carson also had uh, a reference to Melchizedek, but they were too intimidated to actually talk about Melchizedek, so they left him for me. So chapter, two, chapter 6 tells us that they are the, of the same type or order. Now in chapter 7, what he's going to do is completely unfold this idea that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what the rest of this chapter will be about. So the writer unfolds this idea first by pointing out 
He points right to the story that we have just looked at. And he explains first who Melchizedek is and then how Abraham responds to him. So first, Melchizedek, he is the the king of Salem or, or the king of peace. And this may be because he was king of a place that would become Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or because he was a peacemaking king during a time where all these kings were fighting against one another. He didn't go out and make war like the other kings did. We also see that he is priest of the Most High God. He was the mediator between God and man. And notice back in Genesis 14, he's the only one. There's not a whole bunch of them. There's just one. Then the writer goes on to say in verse 2 that if you translate his name... Melchizedek, it actually means king of righteousness or righteous king, i.e. a good name for a child. In addition, he is without mother and father or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. Wait, wait, this just got weird. So how is it, and this may be why Daniel and Carson left this for me, so how is it that he's talking about this guy, Melchizedek, and it says that he has no mother and no father and no end of days and no beginning of life. What, what, what is all that? What, what's going on here? What is the writer trying to say? So, so did Melchizedek come from nowhere? Did he, he just showed up? He has no dad and no mom and no family tree and no beginning and no end? I know what you're thinking. This sounds a lot like God, king of peace king of righteousness, has no beginning, has no end, right? And that's a really tempting way to read this passage, a really tempting way to understand this passage. And there's actually some people who believe that that's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 14, that this is an appearing of God as a person in the Old Testament. And it's really tempting to think that. But let me offer a few reasons why I don't think that Melchizedek is an appearing of God as a man in the Old Testament. We'll see in verse 3, the writer says, Melchizedek resembles, he resembles the Son of God. He could have used a word that would, would make him more equal to or exactly the same as, and he doesn't do that. Secondly, in verse 4, the writer will call him a man, and then again in verse 6, he will call him a man. And then he mentions that Melchizedek does not descend from the tribe of Levi. This indicates that he does descend from somewhere, we just don't know where. And so the fact that there is no genealogy in the book of Hebrews tips us off to the fact that we just don't know where, or in the book of Genesis, I'm sorry, tips us off to the fact we just don't know where he came from, but he did come from somewhere. So what is the author trying to say? Um, I I believe the author's objective is to tell us more Uh, It's not to tell us about the person of Melchizedek as much as it is to tell us about his priesthood. In addition, the writer of Hebrews, he he likes to look backwards to the Old Testament, persons or things in the Old Testament. And he likes to, to point to them and say, this tells us about something that would come later. Often the writer will show that Christ is the greater version of that thing or that person. Or he is the true fulfillment of what that person represents. And, and so far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is the greater messenger, the greater Adam, the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, 
the greater rest, the greater salvation, the greater high priest, and the greater hope. And this morning, we're going to see that, that he, Jesus, is the true Melchizedek, or the greater Melchizedek. So now that we know who Melchizedek is, let's look at what he does and how Abraham responds to him. Up in verse 1, we see that, that the exact same thing that we saw in Genesis 14, that's what he's talking about. That Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. And as we'll see, this transaction plays heavily into the argument that the author is making. So this is not for no reason. This, this plays into the point that he's trying to make. So look with me at verses 4 through 10. <clears throat> it says, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also descend from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. At first, this seems kind of complex. So you've got this person descending from that person and this person giving to this person and this person being told to do so forth and so on. But let me see if we can kind of get the argument um, laid out and, and really see what it's talking about in detail. And to do that, I'm going to need some volunteers. So um, I'm going to voluntold some people. Um, let me see. Let me see if I can get, is that Hunter Mason? Let's see if we can get Hunter and then Isaac and then Ben. And then I'm going to need somebody to play Abraham. So Stu Bullman, that sounds like a good idea. Let's just, let's just clear the bench right there. Come on up. I'm going to need you too, Daniel. Clear the bench. What's up, Mr. Mason? All right. So here's what we're going to do. Daniel is going to be Melchizedek. All right? So this is his priestly garment. Priestly garment there. And now I'm going to need someone to be Abraham. Oh, you will do. Why don't you come stand right here? There you go. Now... Uh, right. Wisdom. Yeah. Now, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, right? Yeah. Hey, 10%, all of it. <laughs> so he, he gives, right? And so stand here. Now, here, stand like this like you're at a wedding. Okay. Okay. Don't lock your knees, you'll fall over. Come on. And so Abraham had a son, right? What's his son's name? Isaac. Isaac. Wow, okay, wow, we got one of those. All right. <laughs> So then Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob, right? So then we're going to have Jacob right here. And then Jacob has a whole bunch of sons. One of them was named Benjamin, but we're not interested in him right now. This one's going to be Levi, all right? So what we can see, the argument that's being made in the book is that because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, 
and Levi is in Abraham, it's as if Levi gave tithes and offerings to Melchizedek. You see that? That clears mud? Now, remember this. Levi would go into Egypt, and he would live there, and his family would be there for about 400 years. And while he was there, they would have children, and they would have a whole bunch of Levites. And now you guys are going to be the Levites, all right? Now, what would happen after that is they would come out of Egypt, they would go into the desert, they would wander around, most of you guys would die, and then a whole other generation would come up. They would go into the land of Israel, and the Levites would not get a portion of land. But as their compensation, as their inheritance, they would receive tithes and offerings from the rest of Israel. And they would serve in a mediatorial role for Israel between God. All right? They would receive tithes and offerings, and they had their own type of priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Okay? So that's what's going on in the book. So here's the argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham gave to Melchizedek, all right? And because Levi was in Abraham through this lineage right here, it's as if Levi gave offerings to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and it's clear that the superior blesses the inferior. And because Levi is in Abraham, it's as if, in the same way that Melchizedek has blessed Levi. So what he's doing is he's building a case that Melchizedek and his priesthood is a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. All right, is that, does that work? Is everybody clear on that? All right, very good. Thank you, guys. So this is... This helps us to answer the question of how it's as if Levi paid tithes, all right? Many times we talk like this anyway. We'll say, you know, when, when we got here, talking about our ancestors came over in the 1700s, they did so on and so forth. Well, you weren't born yet, so how are you using the language of we? Because through generational and ethnic unity and connection, it's as if you did those things. And so that's kind of the, the language and argument that he's using. We, we talk like this very often. So another way that he shows that the Levites are, uh, and the Levitical priesthood is less than the Melchizedekian priesthood, is that he appeals to the fact that the Levites are mortal men. They die. So you folks out there, you Levites, you die as opposed to Melchizedek who lives, meaning that there's no record of his death in the scriptures. You guys die, he lives. All right? So we see this contrast developing. Melchizedek and his priesthood is greater than the Levites and their priesthood. So let's keep moving forward. Look with me in verses 11 to 14. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, the, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has, was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The author, he continues this contrast with the two priesthoods, and we see there are two types of priesthoods being talked about, two orders. One is the order of Melchizedek, the other is the order of Levi or the Levites. And an easy way to understand this comparison would be to take, for example, the, the presidency of the United States, not the president, but the presidency, the order of it, the type of it, and compare it to the presidency of Haiti, right? They're both presidencies, yes, but they're very different in their in their objective, in their origin, their structure, and their overall influence. So they're both presidencies and orders of presidency, but they're very different. And this is the type of argument that he's making. And at this point in the passage, he begins to turn this corner and talk about and to point out the inferiority of the Levitical priesthood at a substantial level. And he's going to make some charges. And the charge is that the Levitical priesthood cannot make one perfect. It can't perfect. And so in the book of Hebrews, the idea of perfection is really a, a large theme. And uh, Thomas Schreiner, in his very helpful commentary on the book of Hebrews, he says this. In Hebrews, the concept of perfection is broad including the forgiveness of sin, ethical righteousness, and the human rule, the, the rule human beings were to exercise over the universe as priest kings. If eschatological perfection could be realized under the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need to designate the arrival of another priesthood, a Melchizedekian one. Another priesthood would be superfluous if the Levitical priesthood could bring about the new creation and bring human beings to the heavenly city. So it is clear that the Levitical priesthood is inadequate. It doesn't truly and finally forgive sins and provide access to God. It doesn't transform human beings so they become righteous. It doesn't restore the human rule, the rule human beings lost when Adam sinned. Instead, the Levitical priesthood had an interim character and in nature so that it prepared the way for a better priesthood, a Melchizedekian priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood does not have the ability to bring one to the completeness of maturity, the depth of repair. It doesn't have the ability to restore the complexity of what it means to, to truly be human and to reestablish what was broken in man's fall. It can't make true worshipers of God in spirit and truth. It can't bring life to spiritually dead people. It can't make perfect the priesthood and the law that God gave Israel was not able to do all of this. But it did prepare the way for the one who could. And this is why there has to be another, a different priest, who is of a different order. And if there is a new priest, then there will be a change in what is required under that priesthood. And so the author is slowly inserting another priest into the argument. And this one is after the order of Melchizedek, but is not Melchizedek. And we know from previous passages that he's speaking about Jesus. And by the time we get to verse 14, it is clear that he is speaking of Christ. Because he tells us that our Lord Jesus, who is from the tribe 
of Judah, not of Levi. So it's clear he's talking about Jesus. So just like Melchizedek, Jesus is not descended from Levi. So there's a change in the focus of the passage from Melchizedek to Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to replace this one here, this Melchizedek. Though it's the same priesthood, we're going to replace it with another one. His name is Jesus. So, Jesus, can you come on up? (laughs) King Jesus, the king priest. He's got his crown and he's going to have his priestly garments. Thank you, King Jesus. So, another priest has arisen of the same order, but not the same person. The same type of priest. A priest who lives. So look with me in verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The statement here, this becomes more evident, begs the question. What becomes more evident? And it seems most logical to view this statement as tied with verse 11. So in effect, what he is saying is the fact that the Levitical priesthood cannot make perfect is seen even more clearly in the ascent of an eternal priest. Or more simply put, what man needs in perfection can only be found in one who lives forever because he lives and this is exactly what is proclaimed about the christ the messiah in psalm 110 which is quoted here the promised savior messiah king priest would be a priest forever not like the levites who died but like melchizedek who has no record of death furthermore The Levites were qualified to be priests because of what tribe or family they came from. Jesus is qualified to be priests because his life is indestructible. So think resumes with me here. So imagine we've got a big stack of resumes over here and we've got one resume here. And as we survey these resumes for the job, and here's the job, the job of bringing perfection to broken humans. That's the job that needs to be completed. And we got these stack of resumes. And you have a stack over here and the sole qualification under the label of qualification, it says ancestry. I am a descendant of Levi. And they all have the last same name on them. And then there's this one with a different last name. But under qualifications, it says indestructible life. That because Jesus' life is indestructible, it qualifies him to do the work of making perfection in imperfect humans, the biblical understanding of perfection, complete and total and whole and repaired, unified with God, that because his life is indestructible, he can offer that indestructible life. And a major aspect of what is intended by the notion of perfection in Hebrews 
is eternal salvation or eternal life. And so if you look back at Hebrews chapter 5, you'll see in verses 9 and 10, it says this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so because he is perfect, he can offer that perfection, i.e. eternal life, eternal salvation. Jesus can offer what man needs because he was made perfect. And he is a priest who lives forever. The Levitical priesthood can't do that. Look with me in verses 18 to 21. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, this, this contrast is continuing. And in verses 18 and 19, the author pits what he calls a former commandment against what he, against what he calls a better hope. And the former commandment should be understood as the Levitical priesthood and the laws that came with it, while the better hope should be understood as Christ, the salvation he brings, and his eternal priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood and the law is useless and weak when it comes to making perfect and should be set aside in favor of Christ and the better hope he offers, a hope through which we draw near to God. Jesus offers the very thing we need most, the thing we were made for, nearness to God, a relationship of perfect unity and peace with our Creator. The law, any law, any other priesthood, any other type of priest cannot offer that perfection. Only one priest can offer that perfection. He is qualified to offer that to those in need. The author, he, he, he adds a little bit to this idea of resume that we talked about a moment ago. And it may be that we add to those qualifications indestructible life and irreversibly appointed by God. Because that's exactly what is said again in Psalm 110. That the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So Jesus is a priest who cannot die and cannot be fired. It can't change. It is permanent, indestructible, forever. He is a priest. Can't change. God doesn't change his mind. He's not going to take it away. Permanent. Look with me in 22 through 25. This makes Jesus, the, all of this that we just said, these qualifications, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The word former in verse 23 and formerly in verse 20, you should note them here. Because he's moved from talking about a priesthood that is happening to one that formerly happened like that. And these two words, former and formerly, they serve as severance papers for the Levitical priesthood. So you all just got fired, all right? The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, look, it's been nice, glad to have you serving here, but you're not needed anymore. You have been let go. And yes, that is good news. You've been let go because you can't do what needs to be done. You served in a really appropriate way. But now, you can go to your house. Don't need you anymore because we've got a better priest, a priest like Melchizedek. I'm going to let uh, Trent depart from us. Trent, thank you so much. You've done a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. Thanks. He didn't even keep the money. He's a good man. So, what's happened here is the priests have been fired. And he, he says in the past, and, and he's saying this is what the priesthood was like, but now there's no longer any need for them. And the author uses the terms of weakness and useless to summarize their service. The past priests had to continually replace themselves because of death. They served in their weakness to uphold a fragile covenant. And you're going to see later in the book of Hebrews that he will say that this covenant is passing away and has almost gone. Because once the temple is torn down in AD 70, there is, there is no ability to have the covenant anymore. And so right here you're seeing this covenant is evaporating and is being replaced by a better covenant. And the idea is compounded by the statement that Jesus is the guarantor, the guarantor of a better covenant. And the writer wants to make clear that the promise that God has made in Christ toward his people is a better agreement, a better promise with better terms and conditions and a better end result. Perfection, eternal life, salvation. It's a better covenant. This may be the very nerve center of the book of Hebrews and is definitely the heartbeat of Christianity. We have a permanent high priest who lives and because that is true, he is able to save completely, totally, utterly. There is no aspect of salvation that he cannot complete. All that we need to be all that God intended in creation, Jesus offers that. Friends, there is no offer like this anywhere else in the world. Any other religion at any other time in any other place, this has never been offered other than in Christ. All that you long to be and all that God requires you to be is offered in our great priest, King Jesus. It is through him that we draw near to God. The very thing which we were created to do nearness to God, with God forever, unity with God, relationship with God. 
That's what Jesus offers through his perfection. He offers you the perfection that you need to draw near to God. Look in verse 26 and 28, or 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which comes later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The writer of Hebrews adds an exclamation point to his argument here. Jesus is the sinless Son of God, perfect, stainless, innocent, holy. He is higher than the heavens, but came near to offer himself up for sin. Our sin, not his sin. And he only had to do it once, not over and over again. And the writer of Hebrews has given his readers an either-or dilemma. Either you can have this Melchizedek, or you can have the Levitical priesthood. But you can't have both, and you can't mix them together. Levi or Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood or the Melchizedekian priesthood, lesser or greater covenant, temporary priest or permanent priest, imperfect or perfect priest, dying priest or living priest, sinful priest or sinless priest, mortal men or son of God, daily sacrifices or a once for all sacrifice, the Levitical priesthood and all its laws or Christ and the salvation he offers. Those are the only two options. And the original reader would have been left with those two choices. And that's it. And so are we. That's what we are left with. I know most of you are not Jews. And so, so you're not tempted to go back to Judaism. You're not tempted to go to the temple and to the priest to make sacrifices for you. But we all have some aspect of old religion. We all have secret temples and secret priests where we like to try and pay for our sin. Places of worship that do not honor Christ. And often it sounds like this. When we try to, to trust in those things that are not Christ, it, it sounds like this. Man, I can't believe I did that sin again. Well, well I'll, I'll just give a little more in the offering this week or, or I'll get up extra early tomorrow and read my Bible. I'll make it right. I'll do whatever it takes to make it right. Or I just won't do it again. Then God will be happy with me. Or I'll just hide my sin. No one will know. It's not a big deal. At least I'm not as bad as him or as her. At least I'm not as bad as I used to be. And both of these systems of religion, both of these places of worship, if you will allow me, they reject Christ and what he offers. One believes I can fix my sin through my own effort, and the other believes sin's not that big of a deal. I'll be okay. But the sacrifice of Christ tells us something different. If you could cover your own sin through obedience, then why did Christ have to die for them? 
And on the other hand, if your sin is not a big deal, then why does it require such a hefty penalty? The life of the perfect Son of God. So God is calling us through this chapter as he was calling the original readers to lay off all the things we might construct or things we might trust to get us near to God. He says, lay them off, to leave them behind, to leave behind all those sentiments and superstitions that we trust in other than Christ. To not trust in what you can do or what you have done, but to, try to trust only in Christ, in Christ alone, for what he has done in his death and what he is doing right now because he lives. And right now, he stands as the priest of God Most High. Right now, he stands ready to hear your prayers. He wants to bring them to his Father. And he stands before the throne of God as the only sacrifice for sin that you need. And he offers himself to God on your behalf for your salvation completely, totally, and utterly. And the question is this, will you come up with another option? Will you trust in another option? Will you construct another way? Will you trust in superstition? Will you trust in something less than Christ? Or will you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, for your perfection? And when we begin to use that word, you see there is no other option because only Christ is perfect and only Christ can offer you and I what we need to be what God requires. And so let me push you. Let me challenge you. Let me encourage you. Trust in Christ alone. Put off all those other things that you, you try to mix into trust of Christ. Christ plus a little something extra, plus a little of this, plus a little effort. Trust in Christ alone. Will you do that today? As we pray, as we close, and as we respond, I want you to consider this. I want you to think through, what is it that I do? Where is that place where I'm trusting in something a little more, a little extra than Christ alone? Will you pray with me? Father, we all have places where where we secretly think, oh, because I've done this, I will get you, or because of, I've done this, I can't get you. But the Bible and your word is so clear that only in Christ and only because of what Christ offers us can we get you. That because your Son stands near to you, Father, we can come near. And because the Son has come near to us, we can come near to you. And so, Give us grace, Father, to draw near to you. In our time of need, that we would run to you to receive mercy and grace because we do have this great high priest that we would trust in nothing that we could construct, that you would tear those things to the ground, Lord, and leave us only with Christ. That is our prayer. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Do you stand with us? Let's respond.